You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This campaign season, our leading political candidates have indicated that they want to make some game-changing investments in infrastructure. In a nation that seems deeply divided on so many fundamental issues, the need for large infrastructure investments is seemingly the one place that we have a broad consensus. At Strong Towns, we understand that America's approach to growth and development is bankrupting our cities. This begs the question, if we're committed to spending more money on infrastructure at the federal level... How do we do it in a way that actually makes us better off? To explore that, today we're honored to be joined by a returning guest, Russ Roberts. He's a fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and most of you know him as well as the host of the podcast Econ Talk. Well, Russ, welcome back to Strong Towns. Great to be with you, Chuck. The presidential candidates are recommending a large surge in infrastructure spending. I'd like to get your immediate reaction to that idea. Well, I think... You want to distinguish between the political appeal of infrastructure spending and the what I would call the economics perspective. Certainly, the general public views infrastructure as something akin to health, apple pie. Who's against it? Infrastructure? I mean, that's like being in favor of inf- infrastructure is like saying I want to I want to build up my core and when I work out. You know, it's <laughs> it's like it's like the foundation of the whole economy and our whole country. Of course, we need roads and bridges and tunnels. And of course, we need physical health. So infrastructure, I think, taps in to that primal uh, appeal when politicians talk about it. So I think that's the reason that the candidates of both major parties this year happen to be uh, pretty gung-ho on it. Economists don't tend to be gung-ho on any one thing. And we tend to ask the question, well, how much do we have and what's the value of a little bit more relative to other things, because there are a lot of things we like. Infrastructure is very important, but there are many other things we like. And the question is, is the bang worth the buck? And I think that's where the economics perspective is can be very different from the political one. And then even within that economics perspective, there are some differences of opinion. I've read enough Paul Krugman and actually saw an article from Larry Summers a couple of weeks ago talking about the infrastructure spending today as a no-brainer. Economically, this is an absolute no-brainer. I've got questions myself. <laughs> so either I'm not grasping something they're saying, or they're saying something different than what I'm understanding. Can you give the best spin on why an economist of the Krugman or Larry Summers kind of mindset would say this kind of spending economically is a no-brainer? I think they'd make a couple of arguments, and I, and I want to say a up front that I'm skeptical of these arguments, but I want to try to give them the best uh, case that they I think they would make, which is the following. Interest rates are at historically low levels, which means that borrowing money is very cheap. So long-term projects seem on the surface to be very attractive. And of course, infrastructure tends to be long-term projects, bridges, tunnels, roads, high-speed trains, airport construction, et cetera. So if we're going to do those kind of projects, if we need those kind of projects, This would be a good time to do it because the interest rates are low and the cost of borrowing is low. That's the first point they would make. The second point they would make is that when unemployment is – even though unemployment is relatively low right now, around 5 percent, 
employment, the number of people working, is not so healthy, and it'd be great to get more people back to work. They would phrase it in the following way. They'd say our potential, uh, we haven't reached our potential economic growth. We're off the long-term trend. And certainly there's an important uh, role that infrastructure plays in long-term growth, they would argue. And they would also argue that there's a multiplier effect, that that the money that would go into the hands of these newer workers would go forward and, and stimulate other parts of the economy, and that would be a good thing. The third point I think they would make is that we have some serious deficiencies in infrastructure, and therefore this is – given the first two arguments, that's why it's a no-brainer. For them, it's sort of a – they see it as, a, as a, a sort of a free lunch. I say sort of because it's hard for me to say anything's a free lunch even when it's on behalf of other people. But they say it's something like, – when they say it's a no-brainer, they're saying we need to spend the money. Interest rates are low. We get this extra kick from the stimulus effects of a multiplier. So it's a no-brainer. I struggle because one of the things that we obsess about here at Strong Towns is the return on these investments. Even in the no-brainer article that, that Larry Summers put out, the numbers that he used in terms of the actual monetary return and the interest rate that we would pay on this debt, I did the math. It doesn't actually pay back under his kind of rosy scenario for over 120 years. That's a long That's a payback long time. Period. That's a long time. And of course, there are a lot of things to say on the other side. One of those is the value. It's one thing to say infrastructure is a good thing or we need more infrastructure, but we'd have to specify what particular kinds of investments and specific projects we're talking about because we all know that there are a lot of ways to spend money badly, and it doesn't matter how cheap the money is. <laughs> and there's some skepticism, rightly in my mind, about whether it has much of a multiplier effect. And so therefore, I'd want to make really sure that the actual projects were good investments. The idea that, oh, it just it's all infrastructure just isn't that's not relevant. That's not a that's not a sufficient argument. You've got to say which particular kinds of infrastructure are you talking about and, and make the case for me that they're they're worthwhile. So that would be the first question. And the, the meta question around that would be, what's the mechanism by which we decide the answer to that question through the political process? So for me, the biggest problem I have with federal spending on infrastructure is that the accountability isn't there. So if the federal government allocates some money to general infrastructure, again, whatever that means, and it ends up building a road that is relatively untraveled or a bridge that isn't particularly helpful in terms of reducing commute times or a train that doesn't cover its costs, even when you take into account, say, third-party effects like potential pollution and so on, well, who's going to pay the price politically for that decision? In the federal government, I think the answer is no one because it's very vague and opaque about whose fault it is, who bears the burden. It's, a, it's spread out across all the taxpayers. They don't pay close attention to any one infrastructure project. The advantage of having infrastructure being sourced at the state or the local level is that the people who, who make the case for it have to raise the money for it. And that seems to me to be a really good check on bad investments and bad kinds of infrastructure. Uh, the other point to make, I think, is that Interest rates are low right now. They're going to be higher later, I hope, because uh, I think they're artificially low right now, or at least I worry that they are. 
So some of these calculations about this being really cheap may not turn out to be true. But even so, when it's cheap to borrow, it doesn't mean you should borrow. So, for example, it's cheap to borrow. That doesn't mean I should buy a, a $5 million house just because, oh, well, the interest costs will be really low. The true cost, the interest costs are really not the real cost. The real co- they're part of it. But the real cost is the principal plus the interest rate, interest costs. So if I can't afford or it's not valuable enough to me to build the $5 million house, which it is not. The fact that the interest rate is low is irrelevant. So I've always been puzzled by that argument. The final point I'd make on the stimulus multiplier effect is that, in my mind, it's most of the benefits go to the people who pour the concrete, and I, they also are politically well-connected. Uh, so I understand why they're eager to make the case that infrastructure is really going to be important for everybody else, but it's I know it's important for them. So it's not surprising to me that they're always advocating for it. And so I'm not so confident that it's going to draw people into the labor force that that the optimists say it will. It'll certainly raise the prices of concrete and the wages of workers in, say, the construction industry. But whether it will necessarily help the people who are not finding work right now isn't necessarily the case. And I'm not a skeptic about the general multiplier effects of that. We have a small historical example recently of Japan, which over the last two decades – our single decade has spent trillions of dollars on all kinds of concrete-based infrastructure. Their economy remains uh, stagnant. So uh, I'm a skeptic really on all three points. There's a notion, and I think it comes from the Depression, but I, I don't know, maybe it comes from somewhere else, that in times where we need to get the economy moving, if if we just pay people to dig a ditch and fill it back in, we'll be creating this multiplier effect. It's fascinating to me because when we get to infrastructure, I hear that argument made sometimes that it really doesn't matter if these are good investments or not, as long as we're putting people to work. I step back and look at cities and I say, well, okay, we, we come in and, and build this project and then we walk away. But now it's not a ditch that's filled in, which is essentially like a net zero. It's actually a long-term liability. Now you've got to go out and, <laughs> you know, fix that bridge, repair that frontage road, repair that pipe. Those are bills that come due. Is that something that economists talk about and fret about and worry about? Or is that a a lesser concern in today's economy, like a backseat to just growth and job creation? Well, I think you make an excellent point that I think economists would certainly recognize that uh, sometimes – well, almost as you say, almost all investments have future costs associated with them, not just the building of the infrastructure at the time that we're discussing – but the point I want to emphasize again is that if you pay people to dig ditches and fill them back in, it's really good for people who make shovels and really good for people who are likely to get the ditch digging and filling in jobs. Ditch digging is an example I think that is somewhat deceptive because almost everyone can dig a ditch and fill it back in. But most of the infrastructure projects we're talking about have a lot of specialized talent. So it's not always going to be the case that unemployed or Underemployed workers are going to be able to fill the jobs that are going to expand because of the increased infrastructure spending. But I really like your point about the extra expense. You know, let's say I decide to, um, you know, build a, an extra extension to my house and and cover it over with a nice roof and it's very pretty. And of course, that extra square footage of my house is going to have extra costs associated with it. If I just merely built it and tore it down and hauled it off, that is a different case. And that is the case that the uh, 
so-called Keynesians often invoke. And, and my point is, well, that will be good for people who build houses and tear them down. Whether it'll be good for the economy generally doesn't seem to me, obviously, to be the case. And it means I don't have money to spend on other things. And so I think that when you, you have to add that in also. Those are real resources. They're not free. You know, the idea is that the workers are sitting around looking for something to do, but the concrete's not sitting around waiting for something to do, and the the steel is not sitting around waiting for something to do, and a lot of the workers aren't either. They're already employed, and they're just going to get paid a little bit more, which is lovely for them, but not so good for, for the economy as a whole if it's not a good investment. I heard an argument from Richard Duncan. It was last August, arguing essentially that the deficit doesn't matter argument, the idea that globalization has pushed down the labor costs, that we have this deflationary cycle, and that we can essentially spend without consequence, at least in the short term. There's a Minnesota, like Midwestern part of me that just reflexively resists that. Yet, I know these are not stupid people making these suggestions. Am I hearing that wrong? Or is there actually a, a theory of economics that says, look, in an economy that is structured the way ours is right now, we can print money and we can spend money and there really is not going to be a consequence, at least not in the short term, that we're going to have to deal with. Well, there are serious economists who worries about the debt are at least overrated, whether they should or where those worries are irrelevant, I think, is a particularly strong example. But there are economists who say that government borrowing money is not a big deal. We owe it to ourselves. Yes, we lend some of it to the Chinese, say, or other nations, but a lot of it is just our own internal accounting. That does not persuade me. I've never been persuaded by that argument. Whether it's true or not, it does appeal to a certain kind of magical thinking. The idea that that something is free, that we can do something with no consequences, is always appealing to the people who want to spend the money or the beneficiaries of it. It seems very unlikely to me that we've discovered a magical way to, say, double the size of our economy, and that's simply by spending money. One way to think about it is to think about the ditch digging example. Suppose we uh, pay people to dig ditches and we pay them uh, $50,000 a year while they dig the ditches and fill them back in. Now let's suppose for the second year we're disappointed at the impact on the economy as a whole. And we've got a lot of people doing this, by the way. We've got, say, a few million around the country, digging ditches and filling them back in. So instead of paying them $50,000 a year, let's pay them $500,000 a year or $5 million a year. And we'll just print the money and we'll just uh, – or we could borrow it, either one. I don't think either of those is going to lead to prosperity. It's unlikely that that strategy of adding zeros to the end of the paychecks of the people digging the ditches, even though it's going to add to – what is called aggregate demand in some economists' models, it seems unlikely to me that that simple strategy is going to allow us as a nation to have more goods and services at our disposal. We've got no more productive. The claim would have to be that we would have more resources that had been unemployed, now employed. I don't think that way of doing it is actually going to have an effective impact. So the idea that borrowing money or printing money is a free lunch is deeply, I think, I think it's deeply appealing, and I, but I don't think it's correct. And the the problem with with the costs of those strategies is, is they're often pushed off into the future. So the United States right now has no trouble meeting its debt obligations. We continue to borrow money very easily. Treasuries. Uh, which are government 
bonds are very attractive in the world market. And that's uh, encouraged us to think that we can just keep doing this. We can keep rolling our debt over. It's akin to uh, having a large number of credit card applications I can continually fill out and borrow, use my credit cards, an increasing supply of credit cards to cover the previous credit card balances I've accumulated. And that works can work for a very long time and maybe almost forever for a certain kind of nation, a nation like ours with a very strong economy. The problem is it works until it doesn't. When it doesn't, you end up like Greece. Now, we're not Greece. We're nothing like Greece except for one little thing, which is we spend more than we take in as a nation in the public sector. And there is the possibility. We don't know when. We don't know how big it has to be that we'll eventually reach a point where people say, you know, I'm not so sure this is a good investment. And we won't be able to roll our debt over, which means we won't be able to finance the new debt without making a lot of heavy sacrifices, which means there'll be a temptation to default. The consequences of that are probably not so pleasant. Certainly means we won't be able to borrow again down the road if we need to. But that might be the least problematic part of it. So I think there is a inevitable tendency to view debt and printing money as, quote, free when they're probably not and almost certainly not. When we think about the federal government spending money on infrastructure. Today, if we look back at like the stimulus bill at the beginning of the Obama administration, there was a focus on shovel-ready projects and essentially putting money into the current system. In terms of reform, for people who want to, to change that system, is the countervailing theory the notion that we should, you know, starve these systems and they'll, they'll change on their own? That seems maybe to me to be a, a little shallow, or is there a way to change them, you know, by lubricating the system in a sense? Let's say Hillary Clinton or, you know, Donald Trump gets into office. We're going to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. The money's allocated to the Congress. What would be the, the least kind of destructive way for that money to find its way from Washington, D.C. to a, a, an infrastructure project? You know, when you say it, lay it out like that, it's, um, even though you said it in a very neutral way, <laughs> I think as neutral as you could say it, uh, when we start to think about – there was some phrase there like, and then Congress will spend the money. And what what we know about Congress, and this is not a – I don't think a cynical view. I think it's a realistic view is that they tend to be – individual members of Congress tend to favor projects that go to their home districts. It's really nothing complicated there. And that's going to be the case whether the, those districts desperately need – the projects that are in the discussion or whether it would be somewhat pleasant or whether it's not needed at all. But uh, there's an important benefactor, that member of Congress who wants to build a particular project right there. So right, you really put your finger on the problem. We don't I don't know an easy way to solve that, which is why I'm a skeptic about the value of federal interest, infrastructure spending. I want to make it clear there are projects that span the nation, interstate highway system being an obvious one. Space travel being another one, if we thought that was an important part of our future, that aren't really best sourced at the federal, excuse me, at the state or local level and are best sourced and funded and designed at the federal level. But most projects aren't like that. They're local. They have some overlap maybe across a couple states. Uh, so a piece of highway or a bridge or a tunnel maybe might be jointly beneficial to a couple of states but they or to nearby states or residents of nearby states. But in general, the beneficiaries tend to be the people near the projects themselves. And as a result, it, it's not reasonable to think that Congress is going to do that in a way that serves the nation as a whole. They're going to do it in a way that serves their own districts. So 
there's no easy way to improve that that I know of that is constitutional. You could talk about changing the constitution in how infrastructure spending is allocated. Uh, you could think, imagine uh, different ways you could do that rather than putting it through the sausage grinder known as Congress. But under the current system, you know, certain kind of reforms are unlikely to lead to radically different results. I, you know, one example would be a cost benefit analysis. You could say, well, for a project to be funded, it has to pass some kind of cost benefit analysis. My guess is that's already there. And my guess is that's kind of hard to enforce in a meaningful way. That's my, uh, my somewhat uh, depressing uh, view. One of the things that we have put forth at Strong Towns is that we see the highest returning investments being small today. When we look around and compare, you know, the big Bertha tunnel going on in Seattle and any possible financial return from that, it is kind of dwarfed by the idea that if we just made little kind of low risk improvements in our neighborhoods, things like planting trees and uh, putting in crosswalks, that those are far higher returning investments, but, but there's no pot of money for that. I'm not asking you to buy into that theory, but I am wondering if you have a notion of how we would do smaller projects in a system that is so top down. Yeah, of course, there's that political challenge that smaller projects aren't as attractive to politicians because they're not as noticeable and therefore they're not as likely to get credit for it. I certainly sympathize with the idea that that marginal improvements, that's a word that in Economics means a small step in a particular direction. Unfortunately, in everyday English, it means almost insignificant. So when I say a marginal improvement, it certainly uh, it denigrates it more than I mean to. But I think small projects are are the way to think about things, and in particular, small projects of different kinds that would allow you to get information about the value of a certain kind of infrastructure. So rather than creating a massive light rail system that turns out to be uh, not very well uh, traveled, you might want to try different smaller steps in terms of expanding bus options or different kinds of, of bike lanes and other things if you want to encourage less car travel. And that example, by the way, shows you that another one of the challenges of making marginal steps, it's hard to have a, a marginal improvement in your light rail system if you don't have one. You either kind of have to build one that goes lots of places uh, or not have one at all. So the tendency is to build one that goes lots of places. And then you find out that, boy, that was really expensive and not many people ride on it. I think there is a huge challenge. I'm getting the pronunciation of his last name wrong, but Ben Flyberg has done a lot of research on what he calls mega projects, and he finds that almost inevitably they do not pay for themselves. Now, that's not to say that they're all mistakes or that they are disasters, right? A project that, that say, barely breaks even or loses a little money at least has some benefits, and you could argue that those benefits may extend longer to the future than you're counting, and there could be other benefits that you're not measuring, and et cetera. But he finds often that it's not just that they don't quite pay off, it's that they're awful. And I think that's the tr the tragedy of these big, especially federal uh, subsidized projects. Remember, they're local projects like the project you're talking about in Seattle, but they're often funded heavily by subsidies from uh, outside the area. One of the things that I see economists do a lot is to look back at past infrastructure spending and then use that data to project out into the future. 
as an engineer, my like gut reaction to that is, you know, when, when we build the 35W bridge the first time, it creates a lot of growth around it. You know, now this new connection, uh, everything kind of changes and people start to invest and build things. When the 35W bridge fell down and we had to replace it, when it went back up, it was shiny and new and it looked good, but there was no growth that came after that. How do economists deal with or, or, or not deal with the fact that, you know, past results don't necessarily indicate the future trajectory? Well, in that case, you know, there may not be new investment growing up around it, but to enjoy the fruits of that past investment, you'd want to rebuild the bridge. I think the real challenge there is that when economists do statistical analysis of this kind, they usually are using some kind of measure that's denominated in dollars. So they're going to lump together bridges and roads and tunnels and airports. And, and all these things are incredibly important. As you say, the first ones, they're, they're very valuable. No one's here. I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that the government shouldn't do anything in these areas. I am suggesting it's better done at the local and the state level, but certainly shouldn't be zero. There are many things that the public sector can do much better than the private sector. And that would, these are the things we're talking about. The real question is when economists go try to measure the impact, do they measure it in a way that makes sense? If you're lumping together all these kind of projects and trying to figure out the bang for the buck of an extra dollar of so-called infrastructure spending, I think you've, you've aggregated past the point of, of, of being sensible. If you're looking at any one particular project, though, I think you have to look very carefully at its setting and what the value is of maintaining it, expanding it. You know, if you build a bridge and then three other bridges get built and so that value of the of the of that original bridge is small you might not want to replace it if they're now new ways and new way, ways that people get around so i think that's the challenge that that's hard you have to go on a case by case basis i was in a meeting once and we had this project we were working on and and it was a ridiculous project um for me i i looked at that this is just silly waste one of the meetings we had, the engineer for the project was coming in with the economic analysis. And I thought, well, this is going to kill the project. And when he showed up, it had an eight to one benefit to cost ratio. I was stunned. I'm like, how, how is this possible? Cause we had done some of the math locally and it, it didn't make any sense. It was a huge bypass project. Well, what they had done is they had converted time saved in congestion, wear and tear on your vehicle kind of a, an estimate of what they thought safety improvements would be. They had converted all these things into cash for the sake of the economic analysis. And then they compared that to a cost, which actually was cash. I know it's an honest way to do things, but it seems like a, a lot of our financial decisions are based on a comparison of kind of esoteric values to actual cash values. Can we run an economy that way? Or are we misapplying that approach? Well, that's a tough one, right? You have certain benefits often. The costs are almost always measurable in terms of dollars. And so what you want to do is decide, well, are the benefits worth the cost? And I would suggest that that's not the only way to make a decision, but it's important. It's relevant. If you fund lots of projects that have negative net benefits, you're going to be poorer than you otherwise would be overall. You still might decide it's worth doing because some specific benefit that's you think is undervalued. But but the point you're making is a different one, really, which is when you have a cost-benefit analysis like that and you have the non-cash components, 
it's a nice idea to put them into monetary values. The problem is, is there's always a tendency to overinflate them if you're the consultant paid to do the estimates for the non-monetary value or even some of the monetary values because there tends to be double counting and sloppiness on that in those situations. The favorite example of this is, is stadium construction, which you can consider a form of infrastructure for a city. Stadium construction for, say, a sports team, let's say, take a national football NFL team, that's a building that's going to be used eight times a year by the team, the home team. And it might be used some other times for concerts and other events, but not too often. And most of the studies done by objective economists find them to be terrible investments for the city and, of course, wonderful investments for the owner of the team. So the owner of the team goes to the city and says, we need a, a new stadium or I'm leaving. The city says, well, we want to be a considered a major league city. We have a professional football team. We wouldn't want to lose it. And while it's true that the benefits go overwhelmingly to the owner and, and some to the fans, which there are many in the city, the owner holds the hit city somewhat hostage and threatens to leave otherwise. And then they hire a, a consultant, an economist typically, who estimates the net value of that stadium. They always overestimate it, strangely enough. They often double count the benefits of people eating in local restaurants after the game, neglecting the fact that many of those people would do something else and still be eating in the restaurants after the game. Even if there weren't a major league team there, a football team or a stadium, they'd do other things. Other visitors would come for other reasons. So there is a what I would call a scientism, meaning a fake faux science to these kind of studies. They have lots of decimal points. They have lots of uh, detailed measures down to the last dollar. And there's a certain fraudulent aspect to it, a certain sham and 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 fraud to it that's a temptation because a lot of people have a stake in having that stadium be built or whatever the that bypass is or whatever the, the case may be. I want to ask you one last thing. It's a bigger picture question. When we study economics, we tend to look back at events, the 1870s, the 1920s and 30s. Are we living in some very fascinating times to be an economist and to do a thing like, you know, host a podcast where weekly you get to talk about economic issues? It, it seems like now is a, a fascinating time to be doing what you're doing. Well, I love my job. Uh, I love thinking about these things. The problem I have is that my field has gotten increasingly mathematical and I don't think that's necessarily and, – and also more sophisticated in terms of its application of statistics. And I've not been convinced that that's been a move toward greater understanding or clarity. So I worry that we don't make much progress on some of these problems that are persistent back to the 1870s and the 1920s. Questions like what should the government's role be in the, in the money supply? What should the Federal Reserve do? What do we do when there's a downturn in the economy? Uh, I see a lot of people with strong ideology arguing back and forth and as ideologues, and that would include me, and not so much as, as scientists. And yet we have this reputation somewhat as scientific, partly because of the notation we use in our articles and the techniques we use in our statistics. And I think that's a little bit dangerous. Uh, the fun part is, is that most people are – there are a lot of people are really interested in how th the economy works. And so they're interested in in trying to understand it. And that part is, I think, what makes it fun to be an economist today alongside the incredible explosion of technology that allows us to communicate. So I like to point out that in, when I was growing up and becoming an economist, there were two economists who could talk to the general – who were maybe three who talked to the general public. One was Milton Friedman 
The other was Paul Samuelson. They had alternating weekly columns in uh, Newsweek magazine. You could add John Kenneth Galbraith to that list if you want. He wrote popular books uh, trying to explain economics. That was that was about it. Uh, if you wanted to try to teach to the public at large, that's about all that was available. There weren't many slots. And because of podcasting, because of blogging, because of the Internet, because of technology, the opportunity to share your insights, whether or not, uh, with the world has grown tremendously. And that's really what makes it fun to be alive right now for somebody like me. Russ Roberts, thank thank you again for taking the time. It's it's great to chat with you, and I I still listen to the Econ Talk every week, and absolutely love it. Thank you, Chuck. Hey, you take care. You too. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. We need your help. If you think the strong towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.